0: in your Bible. So I want to read a passage from second or sorry, First Corinthians. So we're going to read from First Corinthians um, chapter one and from verses eighteen to twenty five. We're gonna touch on a number of different passages um, as we explore this theme today. Um, There's so much we could say about this and today we're not by any means seeking to be exhaustive, but I hope to be representative. Um, We're thinking simply about how the cross brings us to God. But it is something that is considered rather foolish and this is the content of Paul's point here at the beginning of his letter to First Corinthians, to the Corinthians. So let's read that from verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than, men's, than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, now as we turn to this theme, we again pray for your spirit to enlighten us and to humble us and to make us thankful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a rather chilling website named Goodbye Warden which recorded the last words of inmates on death row in Texas. And it began with the words 540 inmates have been executed in Texas since 1982. And these are the last words, their last words. And that was all that was on the website. Just their last words. We weren't told if they were innocent or not. We weren't told what their crimes were, we weren't told anything about their stories. The website's since gone, I think it was only temporarily put up, but I still remember how it made me feel when I was reading it. My, my heart rate increased dramatically, going from one to the next, and this sense of the darkness of it and, and the dread that it induced just seeped out to me. It's full of stories of tragedy. It was tragic when the person had admitted their crime in their last words. It was tragic when they claimed their innocence. In every instance it was disturbing. And capital punishment is a disturbing subject. Some people say that it's, it's simply not cruel enough and some will say that it has no place in a democracy. But even if you are of the mind that capital punishment is justice, it's not something you're likely to celebrate as the defining feature of your entire political and moral worldview. It's not likely that you, to put it in terms that help bring the explicit nature of it to bear us. It's not as if you would have a badge of an electric chair on your lapel, to show the world that you're compassionate, that you're progressive, and to show the world how loving you are. It's not what you'd have for a necklace. It's not what you'd have for an earring or a tattoo. So why is it that Christians celebrate the capital punishment of crucifixion that we have in the cross? Why is the cross, therefore, our defining symbol, as Christians. Now much of the controversy with the death penalty, in the states at least, is when it doesn't go according to plan. And when something goes wrong and the execution is extended unnecessarily or botched in some way, where the lethal injection wasn't lethal enough or fast enough. And the state has a duty to be as efficient and quick in their administration as possible of the death penalty. Bernard Harcourt was writing in the New York Times, in the New York Review rather, after one such particular scandal, because there was a series of them in the states at one point, and he said, whatever your view on capital punishment, no one should be tortured to death. Which seems like something most people would agree with. But the Romans were of the opposite conviction. Rewinding back to to their approach to the administration of justice and capital punishment, they specialized in exactly that, in torturing people to death. Crucifixion was the cruelest method of execution that they had ever devised. It deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted, that was their intention. And within the Roman justice system, Crucifixion was reserved for the perceived scum of society. Roman citizens themselves were exempt from it. They couldn't be crucified unless they had been involved in some extreme act of political treason. Cicero was a statesman, a lawyer, a scholar, Roman, and he wrote that to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. No fitting word. And yet Christians have worn the cross as a badge of honor for 2,000 years. It has become the defining symbol Of the faith, adorning church buildings, paintings, jewelry, tattoos, Bibles, you name it. And the Apostle Paul wrote some of the earliest reflections on the crucifixion of Jesus and he said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the book of Galatians, one of the earliest of the Christian letters. Now, he knew how that sounded. He knew how oxymoronic and counterintuitive that sounded. And in the, passage, in the book that we read from a moment ago in 1 Corinthians, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews. He knew full well how offensive and illogical the message of the cross sounded culturally, philosophically, and religiously. Yet he put that front and center in all of his preaching and teaching. He insists that the cross is where the power, wisdom, love, and justice of God is perfectly displayed. And he goes on to say, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the message about God, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he not only wanted to associate with the cross of Christ, he boasts about it. He preaches it as the defining event of the Christian faith and he insists that there is nothing to say without it. Now that in light of the cultural context we saw from Cicero, is not a conviction and frame of mind that you stumble into for your own convenience or gain when you live in the Roman Empire. Again, to help us grasp this, Cicero says, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, the mere mention is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. The mere thought of it, Cicero said, was to be avoided. To even mention it was to be frowned upon. Not something you do. Not considered acceptable thing to talk about over dinner. And there's Paul and there's the apostles shouting about it from the rooftops and bringing it front and center and boasting in it, and preaching in it, and saying, "This is I'm not coming with my fancy eloquence. I'm going to tell you about this crucified Savior, Jesus. Now, the notion that there could be any purpose in such a death was seen at that time as complete, farcical, offensive nonsense. And it was therefore mocked accordingly long after the event. Consider this piece of graffiti. From around the year 200, it, it may be the first depiction we have of Christ on the cross. It's a piece of graffiti that shows, uh, as you can see, a donkey-headed figure, naked, fixed to a cross. One man looks up at him, raising an arm in, in mock worship. And scroll beneath it, it says, Alex Aminos worships his God. In other words, look how stupid this guy Alex is that he worships a man who died on a cross. That was how it was perceived, and that offensiveness, that counterintuitiveness, that ridicule persists today. We've been thinking about some of the quotes from Richard Dawkins, and he says on this matter, I have described the central doctrine of Christianity as vicious sadomasochistic and repellent we should also dismiss it as barking mad it's ever-present familiarity has dulled our objectivity if God wanted to forgive our sin why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment but why indeed that's our question why why the cross and isn't it intriguing that Dawkins laments the fact that the cross is an ever-present symbol? It persisted and grew for 2,000 years enough to irritate intensely Richard Dawkins, the atheist of today. Dawkins is right to say that God wanted to forgive our sin, but he thinks that when we, what we have on the cross as a means of forgiveness is not compassion, but pointless madness. But at least in fairness to Dawkins, he's animated about it. You know, he's right to say familiarity has dulled that sense of offensiveness. That's appropriate. And it's a good question, actually. Why not just forgive us if that's what God wanted to do? Why go through the cross in the person of Jesus? Well, when you consider the times that you have had to forgive someone, just bring to memory a moment someone who really wronged you, who hurt you, betrayed you, and you needed to forgive them. Did you just forgive them? Was that an easy thing to do? It's very costly, it hurts. It asks to give of ourselves in a very raw and painfully costly way. No one ever just (coughs) forgives as if it's nothing. The reason you have to forgive is that there's been an offence. Many of the last words found on the Goodbye Warden website centred on forgiveness, understandably. This man, Stephen, said, I would like to tell the victim's families that I am sorry, very sorry, I am so sorry. Forgive me if you can, I know it's impossible, but try. Take my hand, Lord Jesus, I am coming home. Dawkins says, just forgive, but that just seems impossible, too much. And it begs the question, but where's the justice then? And what Christianity is bringing to us is the wonder that, Justice and love and all of the requirements of both are met on this seemingly ridiculous, offensive truth of the cross. The wonder of Christianity is that the cost of forgiveness and justice was secured through that horrific spectacle by God himself in the person of Jesus. He didn't delegate it, he embraced it personally. And Jesus spoke repeatedly to his disciples that this was his exact intention. He had planned this death all along and it makes no sense otherwise. Wasn't Jesus said to be so powerful that he could calm storms, that he could turn water into wine, that he could cast out demons, that he could cure all diseases? We're told the demons begged him, the dark side begged him for mercy. We're told he raised the dead. In short, we are told that he is more powerful than anything or anyone he ever encountered in the physical or the spiritual realm. He is presented biblically as being equal with God, a claim celebrated and confessed by the early church who journeyed with this man. Jesus is consistently presented to us as God incarnate, fully God, fully human, fully, therefore, in control. And yet, in his early 30s, at the prime point of his public ministry, he's betrayed by a friend, he's hauled into a religious kangaroo court, he's declared a blasphemer, he's given false witnesses, he's bullied, beaten, Mocked, spit on, flogged, and crucified, dies, and all without the slightest hint of resistance or defense. Why? Why didn't he just crush the opponents and not be crushed by them? Why not simply go elsewhere? Why not give a few more sermons and go back to heaven without the death penalty? See, Jesus was fully aware of what was coming. He knew he was innocent of every charge, but he never appealed. Nor did he ask his followers to come to his defense. He moved towards his death with exacting intention because it was, in fact, his entire ministry purpose. It was the apex of his purpose. And so to understand the cross... You must understand that Jesus was not a mere victim of circumstance. He was not the wrong man, the wrong place at the wrong time. And unfortunate enough to be caught in the middle of that by his enemies. It was not the end to an otherwise promising ministry. It was the very purpose of his ministry. The cross was his intention. He was categorically clear that no one could take his life from him, but that he would lay it down. And he had the authority to do so, and he had the authority to take it up again. And actually, in his death, in the cross, that is where his enemies are, in fact, crushed. In Colossians chapter 2, we read in verse 13, you can look it up if you like, on page 834. Page 834, Colossians 2 and verse 13. So page 834, Paul again writing says, "'When you were dead in your sins "'and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, "'God made you alive with Christ. "'He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Looked like his enemies had crushed him. He, in fact, was crushing the enemy, triumphing. Perhaps you're thinking death row is for the guilty, but what have you ever done? What record of death debt is Paul talking about here in Colossians? What sin? And here too, the cross offends and confronts and comforts us. The scripture says Jesus takes on the punishment due to us for turning away from God. The apostle Peter puts it like this which we began with earlier from Peter also. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He goes on to say, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It's a shocking and confrontational explanation. It shows the brutal reality of just how serious our rejection of God is. Our desire to self-rule is infinitely more serious than we can grasp. We have betrayed and offended. We have sinned against God and forgiveness comes therefore at a cost. We have offended him infinitely. And it also shows the beautiful reality of how serious God is about being reunited to us. And to address that, Jesus is wounded and we are healed. We went astray and Jesus enables a return. He secures forgiveness, but not at the expense of justice. In fact, he demonstrates his justice through the cross. Sin may seem very abstract, It may seem like an offensive or oppressive idea to you, but the essence of it is when we human beings substitute ourselves for God, displace him and decide we'll govern our lives on our own terms, thank you. And we'll refer to you, God, when and if it suits us and when we want something. The miracle of the cross is God substituting himself for us, displacing himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be and God put himself where we deserve to be. It's the great exchange. We ask why the cross and there's many answers that the scripture give us and we can only glance the surface of it today but it's not an abstract question. Consider Peter's succinct and beautiful answer. He says, why the cross? To bring you to God. To bring you to God. Have you been brought to God yet? The cross enables that. And it keeps us there. We've all gone astray. Will you acknowledge that and return to the shepherd of your soul? If you've fallen away. Will you again acknowledge. What you have in the cross. Will you see in the cross the seriousness of your sin? and the compassion to have it forgiven. The cross brings you to God. It brings me to God. It keeps us with God. It puts us level together at the foot of the cross, fully catered for. John Stott said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Goodbye Warden records those last words of inmates facing death row. Jesus' last words, according to the Gospel of John, were this It is finished. But it wasn't the end. The empty tomb was the beginning of that great reversal to bring us back to God, to restore us and this broken world. Therefore, we here in Emmanuel will continue to preach it, continue to celebrate it, to live by it, and to find our liberty, joy, freedom, and acceptance. The answer to our hopes, the answer to our guilt, the answer to our shame, the answer to our dignity, The answer to our identity, purpose, meaning, integrity and everything we need to be brought to God even when we feel far away and even when we think we can never make it. The cross brings you to God. Listen again to Stephen quoted earlier from Goodbye Warden. I would like to tell the victim's families that I am sorry, very sorry. I am so sorry. Forgive me if you can. I know it's impossible, but try. Take my hand, Lord Jesus, I'm coming home. With the cross of Christ behind us, that ultimate act of justice, love, sacrifice, compassion, the open hand of Jesus is ever before us, and he brings us home. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the perceived foolishness of the cross. Thank you that it is your power for salvation to bring us to you. Humble us and encourage us with that truth. Bring us to you through it, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.